Welcome to Agriculture in North Carolina. Hello, farmers and friends. I'm Dan Miller. This program is all about our state's largest industry, agriculture. Extreme heat further stressed crops across the United States last week. It's likely to lower our corn and soybean harvest estimates. Much of the country struggles with rain issues. Much of North Carolina has been in better shape as far as rain is concerned. A bit drier this week, but about five degrees cooler. On this episode of Ag and NC, we'll get back up with NC State Professor and Extension Specialist Dr. Roderick Grijesus. His area of expertise is ag finance, risk management, and Jeff Turner has a question or two about carbon markets. Jeff is my co-host and longtime member of the North Carolina Board of Agriculture, as well as CEO of Murphy Family Ventures. Last week was a slow week in state ag news, but the folks in D.C. were making some news before they left town. Jeff and I will get right to that after we mention Ag and NC sponsors. Ag Carolina Farm Credit, First Choice Insurance Partners, Syngenta Global, and the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. Now let's hook up with our Duplin County studios. How goes it, Mr. Turner? Dan, how are you? I am well. I don't care whether it's global warming or whether it's just a hot spell followed by a cool spell, but it's doggone hot. No doubt about it. It's called weather, my friend. It's weather. It's not global warming. Listen, it's July. It's supposed to be hot. I wouldn't fret about it. I checked the forecast. Looks like we got another couple of weeks of this before things roll around. I don't, I don't think I've ever looked forward to fall quite so much this year. I have. Man, we had a cool June and a cool yeah. May. You got to get used to it. You got to get used to it. It was a good spring. It was a really good spring. Not much happening on the state front at the moment. Things are a little slow during the dog days of summer, which is just fine. Federal government things have just started to slow down. House and Senate members now have left D.C. for an extended August recess. None of the budget disagreements have been resolved that they've had. The House is planned to return September the 12th. That leaves just 12 days in that month and a huge agenda for them. And this includes 11 out of the 12 appropriations bills and resolving differences with the Senate. The possibility of a government shutdown, very likely, as the deadline is September the 30th. Well, they can shut government down. It'd be fine with me. I don't know what it costs to fund the executive branch, but just do away with that part and uh, <laughs> keep going. A couple of direct ag notes. The Senate is set to vote on an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act that would restrict foreign investors from certain countries. We see this more and more on the state level, but this is a federal bill, specifically those belonging to China, Russia, Iran, North Korea from purchasing farmland in the United States or large tracts of land as a whole. It's a shame that we have to take these sorts of measures and I guess I've been hanging around long enough. I can remember when we had the same issues with Japan buying farmland and other foreign countries. But this one's a little different in that this appears to be an adversary that they're trying to block from owning farmland. I, I get it, and I understand it. Uh, quite frankly, I support it. So, And I don't like it either. I mean, the truth of the matter is I believe in freedoms, and this kind of encroaches on that, but I, I see where this fits in. Yep. Things are kind of a logjam in Washington. Senator, Imagine that. <laughs> Senator Stabenow says big differences in the uh, supplemental nutrition program. We know it as SNAP. Those differences are actually the largest impedance now to passage or movement of the farm bill. She is the chair of the Senate Ag Committee and known for sticking up for nutrition issues. 
Earlier this year, House Republicans proposed extending the age limit for able-bodied adults without dependents who can receive SNAP benefits up to 90 days unless they're employed or enrolled in a job work fair or job training program. Stabenow's consistently rejected any reductions to SNAP in the Farm Bill. It's always the debate about SNAP. The vast majority of the budget or the Farm Bill is those budgetary numbers and the policy around it. That makes up the larger part of USDA, believe it or not. I wish they could split them. Well, I can see how they should be tied together. Back in the day, whenever we first started these programs, it was to take excess product off the market and distribute it to the needy. The more modernized program, obviously, uh, and that it's easier to do it the way that they do it. But there's always that debate, how much is too much or how little is too little. Politico reports House Agriculture Committee member Greg Caesar of Texas Democrat introducing two new bills, along with a Senate Democrat from Vermont named Peter Welch, targeting agricultural corporations. I don't know if you saw this, but Agriculture Worker Justice Program, one of the bills seeks to use the government's purchasing power to enforce fair wages and secure working conditions, aiming to prevent what they say are big corporations from exploiting American workers. And the second bill proposes a moratorium on mergers within Big agriculture, food, beverage, manufacturing, grocery, retail, prompting reviews of other such mergers. And they say one way or the other, they're going to try to get it in the farm bill. Most of these mergers have to go through the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act to begin with. Why are we doubling down? Yeah. A real dear friend of mine, Mr. Marvin Johnson, House of Rayford, they had chickens and turkeys, of course, Mr. Marvin's deceased. He had a good saying when someone would come around looking for a contribution, a political contribution. His saying was, I don't want you to tell me what you're going to do. I want you to tell me what you're going to go up there and undo. (laughs) We've got so many laws on the books, and we just keep adding laws, doing the same thing that there are already laws on the books to abide by. And here's a prime example we ought to be undoing, not doing. Let me mention a couple of things that are not Washington, or maybe they are related. Crude oil prices up three-month high for $79 a barrel. They say OPEC cuts and Exxon shut down a gasoline unit at its Baton Rouge facility, one of the largest in the United States, for unexpected repairs. And the gasoline price is now up almost $4. This is Joe Biden at work. Watch me. I can do this. Just hold my beer. (laughs) My beer. Or in his case, his pudding. Russia continues to maintain they won't return to the grain deal unless, of course, some of the restrictions are lifted on Russian grain and fertilizer exports. Last week, the Putin administration took control of operations of Dannon and Carlsberg Brewing in Russia. The Danish brewer Carlsberg, that represents 20% of their employees. For the French dairy firm Dannon, it represents 12 factories, 8,000 employees. And one economist says this is a signal that Russia's not counting on things turned to ever go back to the way they were. I don't see how they can go back to the way they were. Again, th- this whole thing with grain, I mean, it, this is a, a worldwide dilemma that Russia is causing. It's not, uh, it's not isolated to what he's doing necessarily to the Ukrainian people and the farms. In addition to that, all that output goes somewhere and people depend on that grain and He's creating a worldwide problem with what he's doing with the grain markets, in my opinion. I mean, we're feeling the impact here, not because of supply, but because of price. Then I, I read an article last week regarding what has happened to their farmland with spent munitions and yeah. 
and, dumping of things and how they, you know, they're, in fact, there's a scientist that's working on it, uh, cooperating with someone in NC State to figure out how do we go in and identify and clean soils of the heavy metals that's being left behind by all of this. This is a decade or longer problem. The Ukraine is so mined now that a large portion of the tracts of farmland are unsafe. It's really devastating, not only devastating to the Ukrainian people, but it's worldwide devastation. Panama Canal Authority announced reduction of the average number of ships heading through the canal. It's been a little dry in Central America, so they don't have enough water to operate the locks. They're going down to uh, 32 ships. They used to be close to 40 ships a day, as I recall. That starts tomorrow. This actually makes sense to me. I'm curious to get your take on this. We're going to hear a lot more about WOTUS as the weeks and months come up. But in a recent letter voiced by the Waters Advocacy Coalition, demands are made of the final Biden administration to exclude ditches from the definition of federal waters, include wetlands only when they can be distinguished from navigable waters, and erase the independent interstate watersheds and wetlands category entirely. The coalition represents sectors including energy, forestry, real estate, and transportation. The coalition's letter petitioned the agencies not to merely strike the, quote, significant nexus language from the adjacent waters final rule, but they believe that actually doing so would not be defendable in response to the Supreme Court's decision of Saget versus EPA or be suitable for a course for further rulemaking. There's going to be a lot more we hear about this in the upcoming weeks and months, actually. But in this specific letter, I think they address, in a more layman's fashion, where watershed starts. Well, it does. I mean, it, it's it's somewhat definitive whenever you say that it does not include this, 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 and this. Isn't that a lot clearer to you than saying that, well, it might. We've got to come out and look and decide. And then it's left to be subjective to whoever decides they want to go look. If ditches were out, if man-made ponds or retaining areas were out, and if we could get some sort of uh, handle on this significant nexus language, which affects definition of runoff, from a farming perspective, that's like 90% of the issue, is it not? It absolutely is, and again, the groundwater issue. You brought this up like a month or so ago in our conversation with NC State Dr. Rehesus, who, by the way, we will hear from on today's program, that, that in tiling, draining out fields, that waters of the U.S., I mean, that could be a huge issue. Can you imagine what the state of Iowa would look like without drain tile? There wouldn't be any farmland. <laughs> the, the whole place has tile. Does it really? I mean, it's, yeah, it's lots and lots of underground drainage. Your darker land, your better land to grow crops. You have to have moisture, and a lot of cases you have too much moisture. And, and the drain tile is is um, the only way that you can utilize that land. If you start blocking up drain tile, you're going to create wetlands. Dr. Roderick Rehesus is coming up next. We talk about ag finance and risk management. But first, let me mention Bill Carone Cars and Wallace. They are the only Chevy GMC dealer in eastern North Carolina to become an ag pack dealer which means any farmer who buys a vehicle at Bill Carone is eligible for more than $30,000 in savings on products you probably already use, everything from tires to crop products. Check out the advantages of the Ag Pack program at Bill Carone Cars in Wallace. This is Agriculture in North Carolina. I'm Dan Miller, joined by Jeff Turner, and we're joined by Dr. Roderick Rehesus. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, that's good. Uh, okay, good. So, 
I, I want to <laughs> make good. sure I can get it right if I'm going to introduce you. So now I can proceed. We're joined by Dr. Roderick Rehesus. His area of study is ag finance and risk management. I feel like I've done this before. Jeff, I know you've got a question about carbon markets, so go right ahead. Regardless of whether I believe it's worthwhile or not, carbon markets, its I think it's a lot of hocus-pocus, but it does appear that the carbon trading market is here to stay. Fair um, I, statement? I think that's fair. I, a lot of the folks that I talk to on this say it's still the wild, wild west, they say, in terms of carbon markets. So there has to be you know, some learning involved to make it all work for everybody. But I guess from the ag industry, from the farmer perspective, from my own opinion, I think you, could, you should think about it more that as it's an additional income stream or revenue stream that you could consider. Right. So if they pay, for example, whatever, $15 per acre for for every acre you plant in cover crops or something like that, that's still a revenue stream in my mind. As, I, again, as long I, as all the contracting and all that stuff is taken care of. So go yeah, ahead. Well, I, I agree. It, it is a new revenue stream. And it's and regardless, again, of whether you think the basis is right or wrong, it's not mm-hmm. relevant. There's a market out there. H- how easy is it for a farmer to first off get hooked up with the proper coordinator or the market maker in order to access the sale of those credits and the verification of the process? And then the next question beyond that is, let's say I'm already doing no-till and I I already plant cover crops. I'm already doing these practices can I get credit for something that I was already doing, or does it have to be something new that I've adopted that I'm doing? Good questions, Jeff. So I guess on your first question first, I guess there's, again, I, as I said, there's still a little bit of, you know, Nate dimension of Wild Wild West there. So you have the farmer have to do their own homework. So it's, there's different companies, right? Indigo, Nori, these kinds of, even Bayer have have their own sort of carbon sort of, Program. So you have to do your homework and sort of figure out which ones are, I guess, the most reputable in terms of that. A lot of times as we talk about carbon credits, the only way that you can get credit for the practice is if you adopt the practice as a new practice. So I've been farming for 50 years. I've been planting a carbon crop for 50 years. So I'm not going to be adding to carbon sequestration because it's something that I already do, and I don't right, I, right. I don't get credit for that. Yeah, so for the most part, yes. So there's this term they use called additionality. So they want to pay for additional sort of carbon sequestration. That said, a lot of concerns have been expressed exactly the same as, as you. What, what if I've been doing it? for a while. And so there has been discussions in the policy circles in terms of, okay, how do we include those? It's a difficult problem. I don't know yet. I don't know the answer to this question, but I, I think they're trying to make it such that some of these folks that's already been using it could have some support for it. It's not just for the carbon, but for the overall soil health benefits. Yep. Back on the first part of the question, you mentioned Bayer and Indigo and those folks. Does NC State and or the Extension Service, are they kind of coordinating any effort for farmers to access those markets? 
So, and if they're not, uh, shouldn't they be? Not a large-scale effort. So uh, one of my colleagues over here, uh, Eric Edwards, have done some sort of extension presentations on uh, carbon markets and so forth. So if there's a need, there's probably we could probably talk a little bit about it in terms of you know what what things needs to be considered and these kinds of things and what kinds of uh, carbon sort of companies could farmers go to and so forth. So there's no large-scale extension effort, Jeff, but I think there are individuals here at NC State that could provide the necessary extension programming if there is a demand for it. There are a lot of folks that would do more, especially the thing that we talk about all the time is diversification and having additional revenue streams. We're already participating in lagoon covers and methane gas recovery and that sort of thing is driven as much for any other reason. It's about an additional revenue stream for the farm. So Yeah, and right. it scares me a little bit, too, with, with this being such an unknown and such a, a potentially complicated thing to get involved with, that somebody's going to come in, swoop in, and try to be the middleman and pull off a, a money in between the farmer and yep. the carbon market people. So the smarter we can be, the better. No, I totally agree. And so there's also a discussion, well, should USDA be part of this thing, right? <laughs> Should there be some, right. you know, regulation, you know, guidance or regulation or whatever you want to call it? Maybe some guidance. Well, let's market. keep them out of the business. <laughs> I knew. It was oh, well, that's the other thing. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at a little cartoon this morning, and it had a guy, uh, and he had his hand truck, and he was at the front door of a guy's house. He's and it had Bidenomics across the front of his shirt. He says, "I'm here from the government, and I'm here, and I'm here to get your gas stove." <laughs> So I don't, I don't need their help. I'm, uh, uh, you're involved in, uh, I mean, your research is in a lot of these different areas to put together a simplified risk management program, crop insurance, forward contracting, spreading out your sales. What is the recipe for that if, if you can give us kind of a thumbnail? Well, to me, crop insurance is a no-brainer, right? So you just have to, that's a sort of a fundamental uh, sort of risk management tool that our, our growers should sort of tap into. Even if they're really, really good farmers, you never know, right? So it's, uh, you never know when you will need it. And crop insurance is subsidized already. And you could even get the lowest coverage level essentially for free. You just need an administrative sort of $400 or $500 administrative cost. So to me, I guess that's, that's my bottom line. Crop insurance is the centerpiece Risk management tool supported by the U.S. government, people should take advantage of it. And then? Well, and then it, it's up, up to the individual farmers. I, I sort of like, okay, you know, you have to sort of decide what other tools that you're, you, you could sort of use. You know, you could always do hedging. You could always do, you know, crop diversification as, as another option. To me, crop insurance is number one. Everything else will depend on your situation. You just mentioned you can take the minimal coverage with just administrative costs. Why wouldn't anybody take advantage of that? Good question. And <laughs> and it, it, it all depends, right? It all depends on your risk tolerance. The participation rate for crop insurance, it's high, right? For like corn, soybeans, it's maybe 85% now, but it's still not 100%. Essentially, your question is, what's wrong with this 15% <laughs> that don't yeah, get any why, why insurance? You, yeah, why wouldn't you want to participate if, if it's a 
if it's only administrative fee and you get some coverage in the event that there's some catastrophic failure, I, I just, you know. And is it lower in, in, in North Carolina in your experience and around the U.S.? or? Yes, so it's a little bit lower in North Carolina, but not too much lower. Uh, so I guess the highest participation rates are, of course, in the, the Midwest, right? The Illinois, the Corn Belt, Illinois, Iowa, Indiana. Uh, ours, is, I would say they're in the high 80s. Ours is probably in the low 80s. So it's not too much of a difference, I guess, for the big, what I call the big four, right? Corn, soybeans, cotton, wheat. We probably have a great deal more crop diversification here. Uh, True. As far as dairy is concerned, what is there for insurance, federally backed insurance in the dairy folks? So there, that dairy uh, is a different beast, so to speak. So they have their own sort of like they call a margin insurance. So it's there. Uh, it's relatively new, but it functions a little bit differently than the traditional uh, crop insurance that, say, for go- goes the revenue insurance for, for corn and soybeans. We've had some great crop yield years in North Carolina. We've had some great weather years in North Carolina, and commodity prices have been high. Input costs have been sky high, but maybe a little bit better now. What does the crystal ball hold uh, as you look at economics here, farming economics in the U.S. and farming economics around the world? As with everything, I think everything is in cycles in, in agriculture. If if it's pretty high, it's pretty good now, it may go down in, in, in the future. So it's just uncertainty and risk is part of the business. I think the only thing certain is you could just try to mitigate all these risks. Crop insurance is one tool. Uh, among many that they could use, and uh, just be prepared. Dr. Roderick Rehesus, thank you so much. Coming up in just a moment, last week's commodity prices on agriculture in North Carolina. This is agriculture in North Carolina. Thanks to B.G. Mitchell and the folks at Farmers Connection. If you haven't had a copy in your hands recently, I highly recommend it. Farmers Connection is a newsprint magazine with information about suppliers and dealers right here in the Carolinas and southern Virginia. Check out equipment from dealers like Mark Chesson and Sons in Williamston, Caps Trailer in Dover, Nash Equipment in Burgall, Mayor Ag Equipment in Elm City, and Premier Equipment in Rocky Mount, Enfield, Washington, and Aden. The Farmers Connection, online and available at independent farm equipment dealers all over our state. Let's check commodities prices from last week. Live cattle futures ended the week narrowly mixed with nearby August edging at 178.15. That represented a weekly decline of $1.87 and a half. August feeders gained back some early week losses to close down 42 and a half cents, ending the week at 245.60. August lean hogs gained $2.53 and a half cents on the week to close at 103.20 and hit a four and a half month high. North Carolina's egg prices were steady on all sizes when compared to the prior week. The average price quoted Thursday, July 27th, for small lot sales of delivered carton grade A eggs was 145.18 for extra large, 132.30 for large, 122.09 for medium, and 84 dollars for small eggs. Number two yellow shell corn was mixed, 39 cents lower to 30 cents higher when compared to the prior week. Prices ranged mostly 5.91 to 6.28 at the feed mills, 6.12 to 6.45 at the elevators through Thursday, July the 27th. Number one yellow soybeans were 13 to 55 cents lower, range 14.98 to 15.49 at the processors, mostly 14.08 to 14.75 at the elevators. Number two red winter wheat was one to 15 cents higher, range 5.42 to 5.88 at the elevators. Soybean meal FOB at processing plants range 5.02.80 to 5.24.70 per ton for 46.5 to 48 percent protein. 
New crop prices quoted for harvest delivery. Corn was 556 to 655 and soybeans range 1348 to 1420. And that's this week's Agriculture in North Carolina. If you didn't hear the show or you want to catch a detail you might have missed in the broadcast, subscribe to our longer podcast version. Search for Agriculture in North Carolina on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, you'll find all our shows from the year there. Find out more by heading to our website at agandnc.com. There you'll find our sponsors, Ag Carolina Farm Credit, First Choice Insurance Partners, Syngenta Global, and the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. Agriculture in North Carolina, copyright 2023, Interbanks Media. Support the show by calling Hank Hinton at 252-355-1079. 1037. For Jeff Turner and myself, Dan Miller, make it a great week.